You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. The Apostle Paul wrote, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Please join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, is uh, we read this morning, beginning, beginning at verse 19. And as you turn to John, chapter 20, let me just set the scene here. Word had been spreading all day. First, there was that report from the ladies who had gone out to the tomb early in the day. In their excitement, they talked about Jesus' body being gone, about angels talking to them. But as Luke records in his gospel, chapter 24, verse 11, to the disciples, these words seem like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter and John went to check it out, and the ladies weren't kidding. The body was gone even though the grave clothes remained. And then Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene came to tell the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now it's evening. Sunday evening. Three days have passed since Jesus, their Lord, their Savior, had been crucified on a Roman cross outside the city walls. Ten of the apostles plus some others, had gathered together behind locked doors. Those doors were locked because of fear, fear of what might happen to them. Their leader had been arrested and killed. Were they next? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the confusion? Can you imagine the questions that ensued when Clopas and a Another follower of Jesus came knocking on the door, sweating, excited, from their seven-mile jog from Emmaus. They said that they had seen Jesus too. They had talked to Jesus. They had even eaten with him. As I try to place myself and my imagination in that room, I wonder if Those people were trying to sort it out. Trying to sort out all these reports. And then, though the doors were locked, there was Jesus standing right there in the room. There had been no knock on the door. There had been no voice calling from the gate, Anybody home? Just, boom. There he was, standing right there among them. And at least, at least a dozen followers of Jesus Christ encountered the risen Lord that night. Let's read about it, beginning of verse 19. On the evening of that day, this is Resurrection Day Sunday, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Do you want to join me in your imagination, wondering what it would have been like to be in that room that evening? Luke reports in chapter 24, verse 37, that the people in that room thought they had seen a spirit, or we would say in our culture, they thought they had seen a ghost. Listen, friends, have you ever been to a funeral meal after the funeral? Most of us have. The dearly departed loved one doesn't show up at his own funeral meal. It just doesn't happen. And yet here they were, after the death of Jesus, and Jesus is standing there in the room. Had we been there, I'm sure the hair would have been standing up on our necks. Our eyes, no doubt, bulging. And you could just hear the air getting sucked out of the room as everyone inhaled, gasped in simultaneous fear. But in that moment, Jesus spoke kind words of reassurance, didn't he? Peace be with you. Isn't that just like you know, this is a common greeting among the Hebrew-speaking people of the world. Shalom. Shalom l'cha. But when Jesus spoke these words that Sunday evening, I believe it's much more than just politeness. I think he is saying much more than just shalom, peace, hello, ciao. He's speaking words of his peace. And as I park on that, just for a moment, I, I begin to think of the men he said that to. That on Thursday night of his arrest, Friday morning of his crucifixion, except for young John, all these others had abandoned him. Every one of them had run away. And, and it would not be unnatural to picture Jesus coming to them after their running away after their departure, their abandonment, for him to look at them and say, shame on you! And scold them and correct them. And yet there's no scolding, there's no rebuke. Jesus says twice, peace be on you. A 160 years ago, J.C. Ryle an English pastor wrote this. There is in his almighty heart an infinite willingness to put away man's transgression. Though our sins have been a scarlet, he is ever ready to make them white as snow. Isn't that just like Jesus? And let me just say this, friends. No sinner, no backslider, needs hesitate in coming to Jesus. 
You don't need to keep away from Jesus out of fear. He's going to scold you and mock you. But he is more willing to forgive you than you are willing to be forgiven. Peace be to you. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And if you're like me, you wonder, well, this is a resurrected body. Why is he still bearing the scars of his crucifixion? And the only explanation I can think of, because everything else had been restored, why did he continue to bear the marks of the nails and the mark of the spear? Those, those were marks of his glory. Those were marks of the glory of the Redeemer that he bled and died for us. And it's fascinating, my friends, if you read Revelation chapter 5, that this same Apostle John would write years later that he looked and he said, and I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. That even in glory, our Savior bears the marks of his crucifixion. They're marks of His glory. The glory of the Redeemer. I was reading Luke's account of this night and he quotes Jesus as saying, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he has said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while they were still disbelieving for joy, we would say in our culture, too good to be true, while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Have you ever read this account of Luke 24? He said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Friends, the physical, listen carefully, the physical resurrection of Jesus is real. He had a resurrected body that could be seen, that could be touched, and that could eat food. This was no phantom. This was no spirit. This was no ghost. This was not the imagination of a group of naive, wishful thinkers. It was real, physical resurrection from the grave. So how did this encounter of the physically resurrected Jesus impact that group of at least a dozen people? There were the ten apostles. There was the two from the way to Emmaus, Clopas and someone unnamed, and probably some other people too, including some ladies. How were the people gathered in that room impacted by meeting the resurrected Lord? What did you notice? As we read this passage, what did you notice? Did you notice any transformation? Did you notice some change in these people because they had seen the resurrected Lord? Doubt yielded to faith. They, they were convinced. They believed. Confusion yielded to peace. Grief yielded to joy. Did you see that in verse 20? Grief yielded to joy. And I realized that just a few days before this, Jesus had told his men in the upper room, 
you have sorrow now, but you will see me again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take your joy from you. Jesus told them this would happen. Fear yields to courage. Here's this group of people, men and women, this group of people huddled in this room behind locked doors, hiding for fear. And yet, if you continue reading in the Scriptures, you get to Acts chapter 2, and you find these same people, these same people standing in front of a crowd of thousands of potentially hostile people in the temple courtyards. And you hear Peter preach boldly about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you say, what happened? What happened? There is clearly a transformation in these people who encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. And let me add this from verse 21. Despair yielded to mission. As Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. These people who encountered the resurrected Lord were overcome with that joy. And they were so filled with the joy of the Lord that they could not contain it within themselves. They had to tell others. They had to tell others, the one they had seen, that our Lord is living. The resurrected Lord is alive just as He promised. And they would take this mission around the world. But what would they need? What would they need to carry out a mission like that? The Great Commission. It says in verse 22, He breathed on them. Now, friends, there's a couple verses in here that we could probably sit and talk for hours about. This is one of them. (laughs) What's going on and how does this relate to Acts chapter 2? And the short answer is, I'm not sure. (laughs) But we do know from the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit comes on people in a variety of ways at a variety of times. And this is clearly not dependent on Acts 2. But Jesus is breathing on them. And as he breathes on them, you have to hear echoes, don't you? You have to hear echoes of Genesis chapter 2. When God breathed, he breathed life into Adam. He, he breathed life into Adam. And here, Jesus, God, come in the flesh, is breathing into these people. He's breathing new life. This isn't creation. This is recreation. This is new life now that the resurrected Savior is there among them. breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That it is the Holy Spirit who would empower them to carry out this mission. To live boldly, courageously, carrying out the gospel throughout a hostile world. And then he says something fascinating in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? I mean, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, you probably were taught the doctrine of a priestly right, a priestly authority for a priest to absolve someone's sins. And a lot of that's based on this verse. But if you read how these people in the room who heard that, how did they live this out? Read the book of Acts. You you don't find any individual carrying out the right to absolve another individual's sins. 
The Bible was clear that only God can forgive sins. No human has the right to forgive someone else's sins. It's God alone has the right to forgive sins. And so even though we might be curious and wish we understood this verse more, I think probably one of the best illustrations of how this is lived out is how Peter lived this out when he talked to one of the early Gentile converts, Cornelius. Peter, the apostle, who was there that night, how did he understand this? How did he live this out? He said, and I'm quoting here from Acts chapter 10, verse 43 for you note takers. He said, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That not just the apostles, the apostles and the other believers in that room, we would say the nascent church, the, the, the beginning of the church as it were, is given this responsibility to declare the gospel clearly. That we are to go into the world and explain to people there's only one way to be right with God. If you will repent of your sins and turn to Christ in faith, your sins will be forgiven. If you try to come to God some other way, if you try to find peace with God through some other way other than Christ, your sins are not forgiven. You still retain them. And I think what you see here, especially in light of the book of Acts, is this commissioning... To declare the gospel, the salvation, forgiveness of sins is found in Christ and in Him alone. Back in Acts chapter 20 now, or excuse me, John chapter 20. I keep mentioning there were 10 apostles, right? Judith is dead. Well, where's the 11th? Who's missing here? Thomas. (laughs) Yeah, we see that in verse 24, don't we? And we're in John chapter 20, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And there's been all kinds of speculation. Where was Thomas? You know, was he sulking somewhere? Well, to be honest, if you study the few times we see Thomas in the New Testament, that's not an absurd postulation. (laughs) When I think of Thomas, I think he's the type of person that every silver lining has a cloud. (laughs) Whenever Jesus said he's going to Jerusalem, you know, Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him. You know, I mean, he's ready to go, but he's sure they're all going to die, you know. And, and, and there are times like that where Thomas has this pessimism to him. And is it possible that Thomas is off somewhere sulking? It's possible. But on the other hand, he might have been caring for an elderly person or something. We just don't know. We do know he missed out on this encounter, though, because he was absent, don't we? Even if you're not real familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this man's name before. His name has actually entered into the common language here in America, even English. Uh, We call people a Doubting Thomas. That's where it comes from. It comes from this man, Doubting Thomas. And so usually when we think of Thomas, we think of him with that descriptor, he's Doubting Thomas. Now, not to be unkind, not to be rude, but I wonder if that word is strong enough. I I would say that Thomas wasn't a mere doubter. I would say he's cynical. When you think about it, Thomas had probably been hearing from his friends, his fellow apostles for the last week, we've seen the Lord. 
Let's read about this. Verse 24 and following. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So how did he respond to this? But he said to them, unless, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Friends, this is not an intellectual problem. I mean, sometimes uh, we just kind of write things off and we say, well, he just needed more data, you know. This is not an intellectual problem. This is a moral problem. It's a matter of the will. Thomas said, here's my requirements. Here are my conditions to believe. And it's almost as if Thomas had the audacity to say to God, here's my conditions that you have to meet if you want me to believe in you. And I will not. It's a moral statement. It's a statement of volition, of the will. I will not believe unless you meet my conditions. So what's going to happen? Verse 26, eight days later, which, by the way, just let me pause and point out, that would be this day of the year that we're in right now. Exactly one week after Resurrection Sunday. That's today. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, here's a personal encounter of the cynic with the resurrected Christ. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas was a cynic. He wanted hard evidence. And yet, Christ in his patience, Christ in his grace, Christ in his mercy, came and talked to Thomas quite personally, didn't he? And John lays this out in his Gospels, strongly implying that the scene is almost exactly like the week before. That here these guys are in that room and the doors are locked and Jesus just, boom, there he is. And he says, peace be with you again. By by the way, I'm sorry for all my asides today, but this passage is packed full of temptations for asides. How did that happen? I mean, you said, Pastor Larry, that this is a real physical body, and yet Jesus shows up and apparently didn't come through the locked door. It's a real physical body. But resurrected bodies are somehow different than our current bodies. They're real. They're physical. You could touch them. You can eat food. But apparently can... Go through walls. If you want to read more about that, probably the best commentary on this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you start around verse 35 and read down through there, there's a section in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul writes about resurrected bodies being bodies but different than our current bodies. 
You know, some people have this idea that the resurrection was a concept that just kind of took shape over time. The people in the early church were just kind of wishing Jesus weren't dead. You know, I just we just kind of wish he weren't dead. So over time, they kind of developed gradually this teaching that Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead. Maybe finding that myth convenient, comforting. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do, do you see that? Do you see that in John's account? Do you, do you see that in Luke's account? The, the, the resurrection, the, the understanding that Jesus didn't stay dead was nothing that developed over time. It was sudden. And it was not the product of, of naive, wishful thinkers. The physical resurrection of Jesus was thrust upon these people unexpectedly. It was thrust upon them. And even the cynic Thomas had the resurrection of Jesus Christ thrust upon him. He was not wishing for it. He wasn't even thinking about it. He wasn't even imagining it. But he encountered, the cynic Thomas encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. As I think about being there, I, I wonder what would it have been like to have been in, in, in Thomas's sandals. Can, can you can, can you imagine being Thomas when Jesus shows up and speaks his words of kindness, peace be on you, and then says to Thomas, "Go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead, go ahead and, and, and put your finger there. Go, go ahead, Thomas. Put." Put your hand up here in this hole in my side. And to realize he heard every word I said. I wasn't even there. And when he was there, he wasn't there when I was there. And yet he heard every word I said. How humbling. How humbling to realize that our Lord knows all about me. He knows all about me. He knows Everything I've done, he knows. Everything I've ever said, he knows. Everything I've ever thought. And yet he speaks those words of kindness. He, he speaks those words of, of mercy. Peace be to you. Fellow Christians, should we not treat our weaker brothers and sisters with that kind of respect? Paul would later write to the Thessalonians, be patient. With everyone. How often do I get impatient with weak Christians? How often do I treat them with, with frustration? Why can't you get it? What's wrong with you? Why did you sin that way again? Should I not have the patience of my Lord? To be patient with others. Point by point. The resurrected Lord deals with Thomas's cynicism. He says, stop disbelieving. Start believing. So how did that impact Thomas? How did the cynic's encounter with the resurrected Lord change him? Do you see it there? Did, did, he, did he actually put his finger in the nail holes? Did he actually put his hand in Jesus' side? 
Would you? John doesn't tell us, but I seriously doubt it. I don't think Thomas needed to touch the holes. Jesus said, you believe now that you've seen. Thomas, doubting Thomas, cynical Thomas, makes one of the most profound, concise, most personal confessions of faith ever spoken from human lips. when this former cynic becomes a worshiper. My Lord and my God. This is more than some exclamation of astonishment. This is not the precursor of an OMG moment. This is Thomas's confession of faith in Jesus Christ. These are words of allegiance, words of adoration. The doubt, the skepticism, the cynicism melts as Thomas kneels before the risen Christ. Every doubt dissolves and Thomas becomes a worshiper. My Lord and my God. For those of you who have been with us through our journey through the Gospel of John, Let me not move on before I point out something that I think is there quite deliberately by the Holy Spirit's direction. Do you remember how John began his gospel account? Do you remember how it begins? Some of you do. If you do, you can say it out loud with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, the Word was God. That's how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Now verse 21, I mean, excuse me, chapter 21 is like an epilogue in John's gospel. In some sense, the body ends here. And how does John end the gospel? My Lord and my God. Bookends quite deliberate. John's making a point. He wrote the gospel very intentionally, very strategically to show people Jesus is who he says he is. He is God come in the flesh. And the word was made flesh. Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he said he would do. And the resurrection is the capstone. The resurrection is the proof. There's one more encounter in this passage. There were the dozen or so people in that first section. There was Thomas, particularly in the second section. But there's another encounter here. And that's you and me. Let's begin at verse 29 again, about halfway through. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And now the conclusion of the matter in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. You and I encounter the resurrected Lord. The one who said He is who He says He is. That He is God come in the flesh. He's the great I Am. He is the Savior. He is the living one. Jesus says, Thomas, you saw and you believed. 
There will be other people who believe who haven't seen with their physical eyes, empirically. That would be us. And the other believers from all the ages, from all around the world, who've come to faith in Jesus Christ without empirically, without physically seeing his resurrected body. We have the word of God. We have the testimony of the word of God faithfully given to us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel writers. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical reality of the resurrection of Christ is attested to by many witnesses, even witnesses like Doubting Thomas. I'll just quickly remind you that on Resurrection Resurrection Sunday, there were five different appearances of the resurrected Lord. And over the next 40 days, the Bible records five more. And these weren't just to one or two people. John, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul mentions that one of these, there were 500 people present. 500. We have the written witness of many people who saw the resurrected Lord. We have reason to believe. John Updike, the late novelist and poet, wrote a profound poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter. Let me just read part of John Updike's poem. He says, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence. Making, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. And then Mr. Updike challenges us. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not of paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. He was right. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And if it is not real, then the church will fall. We are above all men to be pitied. Like Jesus' early followers, you and I are transformed when we encounter the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, we live in a cynical age in many ways. People say, well, how do I know Jesus was really raised physically? And yet we live all that time basing decisions on the testimonies of other people. And if you'll allow me a silly illustration, what if you were required, maybe at your job, for instance, what if you were required, your boss told you, I want you to fly to Portland, Oregon? And you'd never been to Portland, Oregon. You'd never been there. And you tell your boss, you must think I'm crazy. I'm not getting on that plane. I've never seen Portland. How do I know it even exists? You know, if you acted like that, you'd be looking for another job, wouldn't you? I mean, even though you've never been to Portland before, you have the testimony of people that have been there. Probably some of them, your friends, who've told you what it's like. They'd seen it with their own eyes. We live that way all the time. We, we believe things because of the reliable witness of other people. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is 
given to us by reliable witnesses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and written in God's holy word. We have written record, reliable written record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you'll believe in me because of that, then you are blessed. One of these witnesses, the gospel writer John, later wrote three letters. The first is the longest, 1 John. And how did he begin his first letter? John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, he keeps saying this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, we wrote these things, things that we saw, things we heard, things we touched. We wrote to you about Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit of God who wrote the Bible comes into our lives, He gives sight to the eyes of our heart, as it were. And as we see Christ, the risen Christ, through His Word, He gives us faith to see that in our hearts. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're here today as a believer, you remember that happening, don't you? You remember that at one point you didn't care about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't mean anything to you. Maybe the only thing he meant to you was a convenient curse word. But then the Spirit of God did his miracle of grace. And he showed you Christ. He showed you Christ. And you saw the beauty of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is crucially important, friends, that we believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not the first pluralistic culture. But we are living in a pluralistic culture that operates with this presumption that all religions are equally valid. And if you want to believe in Christianity, that's fine. That's fine. Some people believe that. Other people believe this. All beliefs are equally valid. They're all attempts for man to find meaning in life. All religions are attempts to find a way to God. And they're all equally valid. Really. You know what? Buddha died. And Buddha's still dead. Muhammad died. Muhammad's still dead. And you could go through every other religion in this world. But Jesus Christ died, and he lives again. He lives again. Biblical Christianity is not one religion among many. It is unique. Because we have a resurrected, physically resurrected Lord. Not attested to by one or two witnesses, but by hundreds. People that were not wishful thinkers. They were doubters, skeptics, and cynics. And yet Jesus Christ showed himself. He's not a fantasy. He is real. And we are challenged just as doubting Thomas was challenged. We have reason to believe. And so my question to you is, 
have you believed? Have you believed in this resurrected Lord Jesus? And for many of you here in this room or listening via recording, you would say yes. Then I would say, well, then live. Let us live in the joyful confidence of a resurrected Lord. Let's live remembering that he's alive and that we need not fear the hostility of a cynical world. If you say, no, I've not believed, then I ask you, will you believe? Will you, with Thomas, bend the knee to Jesus Christ and say, my Lord and my God, the Bible promises, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I began by reading something the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, but I didn't finish that verse. It says, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We are of all people most to be pitied. The rest of the verse says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that makes all the difference. 